Would you just remain standing with me as I pray for our worship time together? Father God, you are great and you are mighty. You are powerful and you are strong. Lord, as we open your word today, Lord, we pray that you would make our hearts places that the gospel would take root. God, that your word would bear fruit in our lives. God, I pray for me that you would strengthen me, you would empower me. Lord, that you would not have me shy away from hard words or hard truths. But Lord, that you would give your grace. God, that we would depend 100% on you to understand your word, to live your word, to spread your word. God, you are so good to us. Jesus, we pray that we would know how good you are. As we leave this place, we would choose that you are worth following wherever you lead us. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can have a seat. My name is Stephen. I serve as one of the leaders here. And uh, today, I'm just going to give a little precursor. Today is a very tough sermon for me to give. Um, It's one of my favorite passages of all time. Um, But the way that the Lord has led me to share today, it's going to be very hard. So you may see me cry. First of all, I'm a crier. That's just how it is. If that's not your thing, then you just may not want to be here today. Uh, uh, when When I talk about how good God is and the goodness of God, I can't help it. Like, it just, it's just something that's inside of me. Um, but, uh, so this, this, is, this is really a, a tough thing, and, and there are going to be some things that are going to make us uncomfortable, um, and, and I'm okay with that. Uh, your leadership team here is okay with that. Um, and I, I just want to invite us to understand and see and really dig out the truth of Jesus, um, because today's truth is beautiful, as all truth is. Uh, today is just uh, one of those hard ones. And so we're going to be in the book of John. Um, I'm going to uh, be pretty heavy into my script today um, because it's a, it's a tough one for me to get through. Um, so I, I want to get us on the same page early. Uh, so if you have your Bible, love for you to open it up. We're in John chapter 4. John's in the New Testament of the Bible, about three-fourths of the way through. Uh, if you don't have your Bible with you, that's fine. Words will be on the screen behind me. Or you also have a phone that has access to every Bible ever written. Uh, and so you can get exactly the translation you like. We here use uh, the Christian Standard Bible. Um, and that, uh, that's what we'll be reading out of. So if you want to read along exactly with us, uh, that's what we'll be. We'll start in verse 16. For those of you that weren't here last week, I'll catch you up kind of where we are in this story. But as humans, our stories are extremely unique. No two of us have the same experiences. No two of us experience the world the same way. In fact, no two of us experience God the same way. How we come to the saving grace of Jesus, how it transforms us, how grace fills every crack and dent in our souls, it's all unique. The uniqueness means that every one of us has a story that the world needs to hear. And every one of us has a story that God wants to use. And today's passage shows us the power of God to use our story to draw people to him. 
Last week we discussed what it would be like to be Jesus, going to hurting and broken people. How we could join him on his mission to seek and save the lost. But this week, I think we zero in on the real truth of this passage. The real truth of the story of John chapter 4. And that's that we are the ones who need saving. We are the thirsty ones wait, looking for a drink from the well of life. We are the ones buried beneath the weight of our shame, broken by the world's evil and slaves to sin. I believe that every part of our story can be redeemed. That's to say that it can be used to show the saving grace of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit to transform lives and to bring freedom from shame and emotional bondage. I say all of this because it's a part of my story that has never been shared publicly before. You will be the first people to hear this. Outside of my wife and my best friend, it, it was not until about a month or so ago that I was able to tell anyone else. But I'm choosing to share it today for a couple reasons. First, it's part of my process of healing. I need to bring it to the light. Second, I want to allow God to use my story however he sees fit. And finally, I want to share it because one of the most powerful things that one human can say to another is me too. It reminds us that we're not alone in our hurt. We're not alone in our shame. We're not alone in our guilt. Saying me too makes us feel seen and heard and known. I am a sexual assault survivor. I was habitually molested by a man that used to live with our family. I don't know how long it went on. I don't know how many times it happened. Sometimes I don't even know if it really happened at all, and all the time, I don't want it to have been real. Unfortunately, it also led to a similar instance when I was an adult. I was put into a similar position in college with a man that I should have been able to trust, coming to my bed for the same reason, and my body remembered exactly what it did a decade before when I was eight years old. And so instead of fighting him off, I just froze. I've lived with this hurt and this shame and this truth for two decades. I have felt every feeling that you can imagine and some that you probably can't. I've run all the scenarios of what I could have done, what I should have done differently. I've asked every question ranging from, is this my fault? Did I deserve this? How did God allow this to happen? And even now saying these words, I feel ashamed. I wonder what all of you may think hearing this. I wonder if somehow this is going to be used against me at some point. I wonder if this is even the right thing to do, or if I should have just kept this buried like I did for so long. But friends, there's freedom in allowing God to use your story. There is a weight lifted from your shoulders as you have brothers and sisters in Christ come alongside and bear this burden that you carry for so long. Freedom, for me, is not 100% no shame. At least not yet. Freedom for me is, isn't never reliving those moments. Freedom for me isn't 
being unafraid that this is going to happen to my daughter. Freedom for me right now is being able to tell my story of survival and God's story of rescue. I thought I was beyond broken. I thought I was worthless and dirty and cheap and used. Something in my heart and mind separated the physical act of sex from the rest of me. I've recently found out that that was a defense mechanism. As a child, I had to dissociate myself from what was happening or I couldn't process it. So I did, and unfortunately for many years, I never stopped. For years, I continued to pursue sexual relationships outside of marriage, even though I knew it was wrong. But my mind and body disconnected those two moments. My sexual ethic was deeply, deeply flawed. Even after I was saved, even after I began working in ministry, it was a part of me that I couldn't let God into because it was in a vault of pain locked so tightly with chains of guilt and shame. I was sexually active with every woman that I dated until I met my wife. And God used her love for him to begin to break through the guilt and the shame. And I'm still a little broken. I still struggle with the fallout of having my innocence ripped away from me when I was a child. I still question how, as an adult, I could allow something like that to happen to me. But I've decided that I cannot be a slave to these feelings of guilt and shame anymore. I've chosen to allow the Holy Spirit to continue his work in healing my heart, my mind, and my soul. I don't know what full healing from these traumatic events looks like. But I believe God can use my story to begin to bring healing to others. Others who have experienced the same things, others who have experienced similar things. I believe that I can stand before people and say, look at the mess I was when Jesus rescued me. And look what he can do now. And through that testimony, I believe that people will be drawn to, be, to see and hear and know Jesus. And see that he is good. And know that he's worth following. But before we really dive into the text, I want all of you to, to, as my grandfather always says, to look at me eyeball to eyeball. If you have experienced abuse or assault, it was not your fault. You could not have done anything differently. Nothing about you is inherently broken or flawed. If you're still struggling with the guilt and the shame or just the overall trauma, me too. You're not alone. If you have complete freedom and, and God has granted you that, I am so ecstatic that he has extended you that grace and mercy. For some, the road to healing is faster and shorter. For others, we may never get there this side of heaven. But either way, God is still good. And he wants to use our stories. How can I be so confident? Let's look at today's passage. Read in John chapter 4, we'll start in verse 16. 
go call your husband, he told her, and come back here. I don't have a husband, she answered. You have answered correctly. I don't have a husband, Jesus said, for you've had five husbands. And the man you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Sir, the woman replied, see that you're a prophet. So if you, ha- if you weren't with us last week to kind of catch you up where we are. Jesus was traveling between Judea and Galilee. He stopped in a place called Samaria at a town named Sychar. In a place where he shouldn't probably have been. But he stopped there in order to talk with a woman that we find drawing water from a well in the heat of the day at noon. Last week we discussed how Jesus should have never been talking to this woman. She was a Samaritan, a group against which the Jews were racist. She was a woman who shouldn't be talking to a man who wasn't in her family. Jesus asked for a drink from her water jug, even though Jewish moral law said that Jews couldn't share utensils with Samaritans. Jesus didn't care about any of that. He saw the woman who was dead in her sin, and he wanted to offer her eternal life. That's what the first 15 verses of that chapter talked about. We pondered as to why this woman might be drawing water in the hottest part of the day. And and my thought was that she was hiding from the other women in her village. And right here, these last few verses, we find out why she was hiding. Divorce. In ancient times, women by many men were treated as little more than possessions. And this woman had found herself being given and rejected by five men. Now the only one who wanted anything to do with her, the one she was living with now, he didn't even see her as valuable enough to marry her. This woman felt used and worthless and broken, cheap and dirty. So when Jesus shows her that he knows everything about her, she is stunned. Friends, here's the truth. Jesus knows our story. That might not seem like life-shattering news to those of us who know Jesus. But for those of us that don't know him, that can be terrifying. Most of us have two stories of our lives. We have the one that we lived, and then we have the one that we tell people. It's human nature for us to invent versions of ourselves that at best leave out the rough spots, but at worst completely distort the image of God that we were created to be. We may be able to fool everyone else, but we can't fool Jesus. Everyone in this small village probably knew all of these things about this woman. Here, though, maybe, maybe she had a chance to reinvent herself. Maybe she had a chance for others to look at her differently. This man who is offering her eternal life, he doesn't know her deepest brokenness. Maybe she can be who she always wanted to be with him. But Jesus let her know he knows. And I can only imagine the gut punch that that probably was for her. For the briefest of moments, she thought she would be different. She thought she could be different. Then with one statement, the wind is knocked out of her sails all over again. But see, she didn't know one inescapable truth about Jesus that I want us all to remember. Knowing us fully 
he loves us deeply. She was about to be fine. She was about to find out that being fully seen and heard and known doesn't have to end in shame and rejection. She's about to find out that it can end up in amazing grace and rescue. Friends, how often do we run from being seen and heard and known? Because we've been taught that only pain and rejection come from that. How many times do we invent a facade of perfection or of have-it-togetherness in order to keep people at arm's length? For many years, I have been keeping the world at arm's length because I knew that if people knew how broken I was, they would never want me. I will admit that sometimes... That has been the case. But Jesus has always wanted me. And the people that truly follow Jesus, the ones that are really trying to look like him, they have wanted me as well. Because friends, I want you to revel in the truth that God fully knows you and he deeply loves you. This woman's life was about to be changed for all eternity. Because she's about to encounter the truth that Jesus knows her fully and loves her deeply. But like many of us, when light starts to shine on the places that you've tried so desperately to keep hidden, this woman changes the subject. In verse 20 it says this. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews, you say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus told her, believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. So Jesus tells this woman, I know all of your dirty laundry. So quickly she poses a question to deflect, right, to get away from what was just revealed. It's completely unrelated to what Jesus has just said. And after start stating that Jesus must be a prophet, she tries to kind of steer the conversation to a hotly debated theological topic between their two people groups. You're a prophet, so settle this debate for us. Where are we supposed to worship? Mount Gerizim or Jerusalem? And Jesus, as he often does, he artfully sidesteps the question. Instead of answering it, he takes a moment to reveal more about the truth of his kingdom. The kingdom that he's offer offering in. He essentially says, lady, soon it's not going to matter. Soon it's not going to matter whether we worship in Jerusalem or we, whether we worship in Mount Gerizim. Soon I am going to make you the temple of God's spirit. And this woman is really confused. She's not so confused that she doesn't know that Jesus didn't answer her question. Like she's very clear that Jesus didn't. But she says, okay, so you've been thoroughly unhelpful. But one day 
the Messiah is going to come. And one day, he's going to tell me, one day, he'll answer all my questions. And then Jesus drops a truth bomb on her. Jesus says, I'm that dude. Like she's like, hey, this guy, like I thought I was going to understand everything. I don't understand anything he just said. But one day, at least we have Messiah. And he's like, ah, you got me. And by proclaiming himself the Messiah, the long-awaited Savior, he just set this woman's head reeling again. She just came out here to get water, y'all. Like she didn't expect to in, you know, encounter the Savior of all humanity. She was about to learn a truth that I think we should all learn as well. Jesus owns our stories. You see, Jesus knew everything that she had ever done, and he let her know it. And he brought it to light, and then he proclaims himself the Messiah to her. Just a quick note here. I want you to really notice this, because this is a theme all through Scripture. This hurting, broken, sinful Samaritan woman is the first person to whom Jesus declares himself the Messiah. She had no right to be the first person to hear that. But Jesus says, I see you, and I hear you, and I know you. Let me let you in on a secret. I'm here to save you before anyone else. This is a really big deal, but it's really not surprising because if we look throughout Scripture, we see God using women who were so beat down to do amazing things. In fact, God used a slave girl named Hagar who was impregnated against her will to give him the first name. In the book of Genesis, we read the story of Hagar. And God comes and finds her as she was running away. She gives God his first name, Elroy, the God who sees me. Then God used a sex worker in a place called Jericho to save the Israelite spies and help God's people reclaim the promised land. Her name was Rahab. God has a habit of using women that most people would write off to do big things and to proclaim his glory. Do you know the first people, the first person to proclaim that Jesus was risen was a woman that everyone had written off, Mary. Do with this information what you will, but I think that this is the story of God. I think that this matters, and I think that God is trying to tell us through the ages that no matter what is in your story, he owns our story, but also our story is ultimately his story. We were created to reflect the image of God and to be in relationship with him. So of course he owns our story. He wrote it. But we aren't just pawns in some giant cosmic game of chess. No, he's invited us into his family as sons and daughters. He has given us his name, and he's included us in the story of redemption of the whole world. We're not only his image bearers on earth, but we are also his ambassadors. Paul, an early church planner, tells the church that God is making his appeal to a broken and hurting world through us through our stories, through our testimonies. He bought our stories with the price of his life. And he redeems every chapter, every line, and every word. 
He didn't just ransom us from our sin and death, and that was the end. No, he had a plan. He had a plan for us. Because, friends, Jesus uses our stories. He uses what we see as broken pieces and irredeemable instances, and he gives them purpose. We see this with the woman at the well. Verse 27 says this. Just then his disciples arrived, and they were amazed that he was talking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then the woman left her water jar, went into town, and told the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They left the town and made their way to him. Let me just pause real quick. The woman came to the well to draw water, right? That was her only thing. When she meets Jesus, she leaves her water. She leaves the jug and she says, I don't need that anymore. I've got something that everybody needs to hear. She runs into town. And then it says that they they made their way to Jesus. Skip down to verse 39. Now, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what the woman said. When she testified, he told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of what he said. And they told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said, since we've heard for ourselves and we know that this really is the Savior of the world. This woman runs in town and screams, this Jesus knew everything about me and he gave me eternal life. He has to be the Messiah. Now that's Stephen's paraphrased version. But that's what I imagine. A woman, a pariah, someone rejected, running into the middle of town, making a big deal of herself to make much of Jesus. She used the same story that had brought her shame and brought her pain to point people to Jesus. She told the same people who had written her off because of that story, a story that they already knew. And instead of sending that, them running away from her, instead of sending them into gossip or rejection, that same story sends them to Jesus. And when they heard Jesus, they believed. The story that caused the woman to go to the well by herself ensured that she would have eternal life and she would never be by herself again. Friends, God has a way of grafting our story into his story of redemption for others. We now get to be a part of what God is doing in the lives of others. We get to say that once I was lost, but now I'm found. I was broken and I was hurting. My back was breaking under the weight of shame. And now I find my life, my breath, and my very being in him. But friends, it's not easy to let Jesus use our stories. I'm still learning how to let him redeem mine. An occupational hazard of following Jesus is that as we share our story, there may be pain and rejection. We are opening ourselves up to feel a lot of that same pain and pain and pain and pain again. 
But friends, for him to use our story, we must be willing to share it. We don't have to share every part with everyone. But the more we keep back, the less known we are. And the less we allow God to use. I think this Samaritan woman had a major realization that day. I think she realized that if Jesus could love the ugliness of her, he could love anyone. And that love was just too precious to keep to herself. She knew that she had to share it. And the fastest way, the best way she knew was to use her own story. She didn't enroll in seminary. She didn't, you know, try to become a missionary. She just said, all I have is my story. So I'll use it. The town could have laughed at her. People could have scoffed. And I'm sure that some actually did. But so many others chose to explore Jesus. And they believed. The more we share of ourselves, the more people let us in as well. The more we allow ourselves to be seen and heard and known, the more others will see and hear and know us, and the more they will allow us to see and hear and know them. But we have to be willing to take the punches, the low blows, the kicks, and the scars that may come with sharing our story. This is my final question to you. Are we willing to take the punches to get in close? There's an undefeated heavyweight boxer, a man named Rocky Marciano. And Rocky was describing his fighting style to a friend of his. And his friend said, hey, Rocky, you get hit more than anyone I've ever seen. You take more punches than any heavyweight I have ever witnessed. And Rocky, who was a small guy, he used a, a, a crouch and lean type of style that was not very popular. But he would make himself smaller, and he would lean, and he would parry, and he would cover up. He said, look, I know I'm a small guy. And if I just go swinging, they're going to catch me with every straight punch they throw. So I take every punch. They go off my arms. They go off my hands. But I know that if I can just take all the punches, I can get in close enough, and I can put them to sleep. Forty-three men found out that Rocky was not lying. He could knock guys out with either hand. But he knew if I just ride the wave of punches and kicks, if I just continue to wade in, if I lean in, eventually my chance will come. Friends, sharing our story and sharing the gospel is the same way. We can't just go in throwing haymakers. People see that coming and duck out of the way. But using our story, leaning into things that hurt us, taking the punch of rejection over and over and over again, knowing, knowing that someday God will be drawing that person to them and you will be close enough. You will be close enough that you get to treat them the way that Jesus treated you. You get to introduce them to Jesus. So friends, will we take the punches to getting close? Let's pray.
But we're so thankful for you. We're so thankful that no part of our story, not a chapter, not a line, not a word, goes beyond redemption. Lord, thank you for showing us what it looks like to use someone's story, someone's story that's hurting and broken and painful to draw others to you. And I pray that you would empower us, you would embolden us, you would strengthen us. First, Lord, to bear each other's burdens. Lord, that as we are seen and heard and known as a church family, that we would carry each other's burdens. That we would know that as a family, we don't have to carry this weight alone. But God, I pray that we would then take our stories to those who are hurting and broken. We would be able to say, look at this. Look at, look at how miserable and wretched I am. And Jesus loved me. And he loves you too. Lord, I pray that we would take the punch of rejection over and over and over again, knowing that if we get close enough, the truth of your gospel will put their flesh to death and raise their spirits to life. God, we love you. We're so thankful for you. Lord, thank you for saving me. Thank you for saving my friends. Lord, if anyone listening does not know you, Lord, I pray that our arms would be open and that we would welcome them into the family of God, Lord, that they would run to you, a God who sees them and hears them and knows them fully and loves them deeply, even in their sin, even in the rejection of him. He's calling them. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to go into...